0: If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John, chapter 1. We've now been in the book of John for a couple of weeks, and we're moving through this prologue to the book, which gives us kind of the introductory material to the entire letter, where the Apostle John is wrestling and explaining to us the person of Jesus. I can only imagine what it must have been like as a human man, as a disciple, a follower of Jesus, who was called to follow Jesus. You think with me of the Apostle John. John was a fisherman. He was in the fishing trade with his brother James and with partners Andrew and Simon. They fished on the Sea of Galilee. They were probably rough-hewn, men with the bark on kind of guys. They meet Jesus. We will read later in this book, in this chapter, how Andrew, who was following John the Baptist and had been baptized by John the Baptist, comes into contact with Jesus the first time. We have that introductory material here in John's Gospel that we don't have in the other synoptics where Jesus later comes to them on the banks of the Sea of Galilee and says to them, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. But as an ordinary man, a fisherman... He was just kind of living his life day by day like us, trying to figure out how to make ends meet and how to stay out of trouble with the authorities and not get the Romans ticked off and all the other things. (coughs) Coming to terms with who this person is that they are following, who feeds 5,000, who raises the dead, who stills the sea. Who is this? And so the Holy Spirit gives to us in this prologue an explanation of the person of Jesus. And we've been looking at that. He began in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. For and without Him, nothing that is in existence came into existence. In Him was life. The life was the light of men. (coughs) Then we get to verse 14. This so relates to Christmas. And what we think about when we think about Jesus, who He is, the Word, the eternal Word who was with God and was God, (coughs) the Word became flesh in verse 14 and dwelt among us. And then John says, We, we his followers, we apostles who walked with him for three and a half years, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, the monogeny. And we'll talk about that word, that phrase, not only a little bit today, but in other parts of the Gospel of John. John loves this title for Jesus. He is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, we're talking about John the Baptist, for John the Baptist bore witness about him. He cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me of the two who was the older in an earthly sense. Well, John the Baptist, he is the forerunner. He comes into the earth, onto the earth, onto the scene of the world, to Elizabeth in the home of Zechariah, before Jesus. And yet, John says rightly of him, he ranks before me, because he was before me. (coughs) Excuse me. For from his fullness... We have all received grace piled on grace. <coughs> For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God. Who is at the Father's side or comes from the father's bosom? It's a little bit closer translation. He has made him known. Let's go to him in a word of prayer. <coughs> While I'm praying, would somebody give me a glass of water? I got a tickle in my throat. I think John's getting it. Thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you became flesh and dwelt among us. We think of this mystery, the incarnation. We maybe focus on it a little bit more this time of year because of Christmas than at other times of year. But Lord, help us that we may be just captivated by this concept, this truth. That God became flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, we confess this to be true. We believe it. And in it, Lord, we find our salvation. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's just get our bearings again. Last week we did something different, so let's get our bearings about where we are in the book. We've been talking about the outline of the book of John. We did that one message. We talked about the prologue, the person of Jesus, that we just briefly looked at in our introduction today. But then there are three things essentially that we focused on in this prologue. The first thing that we focused on was the Word's being. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God second thing we looked at was the word's reception. He was in the world. The world was made by him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own people. The nation of Israel. He had been written of in all of the prophets... For hundreds of years, they were looking for him. He comes to his own people. And his own received him not. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the authority to be sons of God. And then he says, we talked about the new birth who were born. They were born again. We're going to talk about the new birth. Not only have we talked about it, we'll really focus on that when we get to John chapter 3. What does it mean to be born again? Who's got to be born again? What is it? Is it like some experience, some ecstatic thing that happens to you? Uh, Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can I, being old, be... Born? Do I get back in my mother? And What does this mean? What's the new birth? He says here in this chapter, in John chapter 1, they were born. Not of the will of man. Not of the will of the flesh. Not by any human achievement, but by God. And so we talked a little bit about the new birth. Today we move on and we see this truth that he tells us in verse 14. The word, the eternal word that had always been in existence. Remember, we talked about what the idea, the concept word. When it says here that Jesus is the word, we're thinking about the logos, that he is the logic. He is the one who reveals God. I gave you the illustration. If I'm sitting in my chair and I'm reading a book or I'm reading the newspaper and my wife Amy is talking to me, she looks, what are you thinking? Well, she doesn't know what I'm thinking until I what? Say something. Until I say something, she doesn't know what's going on in my head. And so it is with God. You know, so many times in the world, people think, who are you, God? What are you doing? We need a word from you. Well, what has he done? He has given us His Word. His Word is Jesus. He is the Word. He reveals to us God. And so the Word became flesh, took on flesh. Now, sometimes in the Bible, the word flesh is used in a very negative sense, isn't it? Sometimes it speaks about the part of me that is a sinner, the part of me that yearns to do what is wrong. And we say of that, that that is my flesh. But sometimes the word flesh just is used in a way to speak of like flesh and blood. Kind of that concept of humanity, a body. That Jesus took on a body. He becomes flesh. People could touch him. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas? Come here, Thomas. You don't believe I'm alive? Stick your hand in my side. Put your hand in the holes in my wrists. Come and touch me. What did he do in John 21? When he comes and he meets them on the beach in Galilee, he sits down with them and what does he do? He eats with them. He eats with them. He's flesh. He's human in every sense. He's not a mirage. He's not a phantom. He's flesh. The Word took on a body. Now, there are, some indoctrin- there are some important doctrinal truths in this section that we just read about the incarnation. Uh, sometimes we see this word incarnation. And so we have incarnate, which is flesh. So it is the infleshing. God in flesh. So when you hear the word incarnation, incarnation, what we are thinking about is this truth that the eternal Word of God that was invisible, that was unseen, God is a spirit. Jesus says that in John chapter 4. God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This God who is spirit takes on flesh, and he does so in the virgin birth, and he comes into the world through the womb of the Virgin Mary. We also see, then, that there is a prophecy in the Old Testament that is related to the virgin birth when it says, of this one who would come that would be born of a virgin, she should be called, he should be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God is with us. He is with us. How is he with us? Is he just floating around the room? Is he a spirit in the room? No. He is with us in flesh. So he came as a man. There's also in this section, and this is an important contrast between Moses and Jesus that we will see this morning for just a few minutes. So let's run along and continue the thing. The Word became flesh, and what did the Word do? It dwelt. It took up a dwelling among us. That's an important word. The word dwelt is a Greek word, skenao, and it means to live in a tent. It's used in other places in the scripture. When you think about a tent, for most of us, a tent would be a temporary dwelling place. Uh, I don't mind living in a tent sometimes, but I don't want to live in a tent all the time, especially in the middle of the winter in Star Valley. You know, You know, a tent's a great place to be when you're camping out and those kind of things. It's a temporary dwelling place. And so, you know, especially in the ancient world, you had nomadic people. And there are still nomadic people in the Middle East who live in tents. They travel about. They pitch their tent. And so the word here, to dwell, he came and took up a dwelling. It's not the word like he came and he lived in a house. No, he came and he lived in a tent. Now, this word is used in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it speaks about us, that we live now in a tent, And in this tent in which we live, we groan while we earnestly wait to be clothed with our habitation from on high, with the eternal dwelling in our glorified body. Right now, we dwell in a tent. However, he's probably not speaking in this way, in this definition, when he says the word became flesh, and tented among us. He is probably more speaking in the technical sense of the tent from the Old Testament in which God dwelt in the Old Covenant. He dwelt in the tent. Now we're going to see this contrast in this section, in this paragraph between Moses and Jesus. The law comes through Moses. All the ceremonial system. And a part of the ceremonial system was the worship in which the Jews engaged. And the central to the Jewish worship was the tent. Now later that is replaced by a temple. But for hundreds of years it is a tabernacle. It is a tent. And when the Jewish people in the Old Covenant thought about the presence of God, they thought about this tent in which was the holy place and the holiest place, and in the holiest place in which was the Ark of the Covenant. And there on the mercy seat was where the blood was applied and access came. Man could come to God through a priest in the tent. And now John tells us the Word became flesh and he tented, he tabernacled. So now we don't think about a building, we think about a person. God has come in the person of Jesus. So, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the shadows in the Old Covenant ceremony. In Colossians chapter 2, I think it's in verse 17, it says that all these things in the Old Covenant are shadows, but the substance is Christ. The shadow proceeds, and the shadow Gives form to what is coming, but the shadow is not the substance, it is just the picture of the reflection. The substance is Christ. So Jesus, the fulfillment of all the shadows in the Old Covenant ceremony. This is an oft-repeated theme in John's Gospel. We're going to see this time and time again as we go through John's gospel that Jesus fulfills the Old Covenant. So Jesus is like this. John's going to say, behold, the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. Where does that come from? The Lamb that was sacrificed in what? The tent. Behold, the Lamb of God. And then we're going to see things like this. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He is the candelabra. He is the fulfillment of all these things. He says, I am the bread. And so we think about the table of the bread of the presence in the, in, in the holy place. So all of these things that we will see in the gospel of John, John is, in a way, in this prologue, he is pointing to the truth that he is going to develop, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the shadows in the Old Covenant ceremony. And he says here, we beheld His glory. Now listen. You couldn't go in to the holiest of holies as just a mere mortal man. Only one man went in there once a year and he did not dare go without blood. And he went with fear and trepidation. You could not go into that holiest of holies and behold the glory of God and live. But we beheld it. We have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we beheld. Now, this is an interesting word. The word is the, or mine. It means to view as in a theater. To view as in a theater. You go to the theater and you view something on the big screen and it's powerful and it makes an impact on your life. And it's like here, they are looking at Jesus and it's like this spectacle. It's like going to a movie and you're like amazed. Look at what he has done. We have seen his glory. The same thing comes up by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, we all with an unveiled face. Now, this is a reference around time to do it this morning to Moses, who when he went up on Mount Sinai, would put a veil over his face when he came down, because when he was up on the mountain, the Shekinah glory of God would like radiate off his face. So when he came down off the mountain, he had been in the presence of God. He hadn't seen the full glory of God, but just like the sunburn from the glory of God was like a radiation burn that is just like, and it scares the people to death. I mean, they see him coming. It's like Charlton Heston coming down the mountain, and they see him coming. He's like, what in the world happened to him up there? Put a veil over your face. You're scaring us to death. So when everybody came down from the mountain, he put a veil over his face. Because the people were scared of him. But we, we get to see the glory of God and we don't have to put a veil on. With an unveiled face are looking not into the direct sunlight of his glory, but we are looking as in a mirror that the reflected glory of the Lord. And as we do so, what is that doing to us? It metamorphosizes us. That word is used in Romans chapter 12, how we are to be metamorphosized by the renewing of our mind into that same image from glory to glory. Now look, you all made, what do they call those stupid things? New Year's resolutions. (laughs) Maybe you didn't. And you probably broke it already. But there's something about yourself you want to change. I know there is. If you really want to be transformed, and I want to be transformed, don't do it by just human effort and resolution and endeavor. Just get into the mirror of the Word of God And see the glory of God. And come into contact with God in his word in a way that when you do so, he changes you. That is what Paul is telling us in that verse. We have beheld his glory. Have you ever been in the word of God and you're just like, wow, I can't look at that. The stunning glory of God reflected off that page is so revealing to me my sin I can't see it I don't want to look at that but as I come to terms with it and I say I'm going to push through that and I am going to go into the mirror even though it hurts it's like going to the physical therapist right Chris was talking about that last week what does a physical therapist do? He hurts you, but he hurts you for your good. And the glory of God hurts. But it is for our good. Press on. There was a developed contrast between Moses and Jesus, all in this text. There were two great means or men who were the means of redemption in the Scripture. You have Moses and you have Jesus. Jesus says to these people later in the book, Moses in whom you trust. Moses in whom you trust. Look to me and be saved. But there was Moses and there was Jesus. Moses was the agent that God used to bring Israel out of Egypt. He was the recipient of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. On Mount Sinai, he gets it all. Can you imagine God saying, "This is how I did it." In the beginning, I spoke. First I said, "In the beginning, let there be light." And there was light. And God tells Moses this. Can you imagine being with him on the mountain and hearing God telling you, this is what he did. This is what happened to Noah. This is all about the flood. This is why you're up here and you're kicking around and you see fossils on the top of a mountain. Where did those fish come from on top of the mountain? This is how they got there. Oh, now I understand that. All that stuff, he's a recipient of it up on Mount Sinai. He was highly esteemed and revered within Judaism. He's a great man. Moses is a great man. Any man, think about this. Any man who could start at 80. (laughs) And God said to him, now I want you to go down to Egypt and I'm sure Moses is saying, can I not just take care of these sheep? I'm like ready for retirement. I'm 80, God. I'm 80 years old. Think about that. I mean, sometimes they depict him in the movies like he's a 30-year-old buff guy. I mean, he's like a 80-year-old who can't see and can't talk, and he's, you know, humbling around on a crutch because he's got a stick. And God sends him to Egypt. This is a great man. Highly esteemed and revealed within Judaism. But there's a developed contrast in this section between Moses and Jesus. Let's do it real quick. Look at these contrasts. Notice what it says first of all. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came. Now, this draws attention to a huge contrast. The law did not originate with Moses. He didn't make it up. It was given by him, through him. He is the intermediary. God speaks to Moses who tells people what God has said. Jesus, on the other hand, is the direct pipe. Notice a different word. The first is a passive. It was given. The second one, grace and truth, actively comes through Jesus. So, this is the contrast. Moses was a great man. He was mightily used of God to redeem. But nothing about Moses comes from Moses himself. It is all God who is just simply using him as an intermediary, just like any one of us. But Jesus is completely different because he is the direct revealer. He is the Word who becomes flesh. And he tells us exactly what God is thinking. And so there's a marked contrast in the greatness here between Moses and Jesus. Another contrast, the law comes. Now the law was good. When it says here, the law was given to Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus, he's not saying, well, Moses brought something that was bad, and it was the law. Sometimes we, for some reason, evangelicals, think of the law in a bad way. Oh, the law is good. The law comes from God. It is the mind of God. It is the character of God reflected in. But it can't save me. The law was good. It is full of type and shadow. And it also has no means of enablement to fulfill what it required. It says, children, obey your parents. Honor them. And then it says, if there is a child in your camp and he rebels and he rejects repeatedly, The parents are to take him outside the camp and they were to what? Stone him. One of the little little kids, and I don't got time to go into that whole thing in the law, but the law is all about judgment. You obey it or you die. And the worst thing about it is this. There is no enablement to fulfill what it requires. There's this tremendous requirement of absolute perfection, and yet there's nothing inside of me that says, okay, I want to obey that. The only thing that's inside of me is, how can I get around it? You know, how can I disobey mom and dad and nobody knows? Right? Amen, kids? You know, How can I get away with it? That's what's inside of me. There's no enablement to fulfill it. So the law is good, but it is only a schoolmaster to show me my need of Christ. It shows me that I'm a mess, that I am screwed up, that I'm a sinner. Grace and truth come by Jesus. Now, this phrase, grace and truth, is repeated twice here. It is the Greek equivalent to a Hebrew phrase. The Hebrew phrase is mercy and faithfulness. If you read your Old Testament enough, you will see those two things linked repeatedly. Mercy and faithfulness. Mercy and faithfulness. So God says on Mount Sinai, when he shows Moses his glory, Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I can't. If I did, you would die. I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will put my hand over it And after I've gone by, I'll remove it, and you will see the tailings of my glory. And as he goes by, God himself pronounces his glory. And what he says is this as he goes by. I am a God of mercy and faithfulness. Mercy. Covenant loyalty. Faithful to the covenant. You may not be faithful to the covenant, but I always will be because I am faithful. So Jesus is the equivalent. He is the revelation of this truth of the character of God that He is merciful and He is faithful. He is grace and He is truth. And He tells us here that of that fullness, the fullness of the mercy and faithfulness of God, we have all received and we have received grace piled on grace. Oh, have you ever had a big breakfast and your wife just brings out pancake piled on pancake? It's just like one after the other. And it's like, man. Grace piled on grace. My goodness, I look at my life. God has piled grace on grace, on grace, on grace. Remember in the book of Malachi, he says, put me to the test. If I do not open the windows of heaven and pour out on you a blessing you cannot receive, just grace on grace, Moses could not see the essence of the glory of God although he requested it. I already talked about that story. He says to God, "Show me your glory." I mean, he's been up there so long, 40 days. And he's gotten close to God. I can't imagine what this is like. I mean, he has pushed through all of those different layers of his own flesh in fellowshiping with God in that place on the mountain, and he's just like, God, show me your glory. God says, I can't. If I did, you'd be with me. And I got something for you to do here yet. You couldn't stand it. Moses could not see the essence of the glory of God, although he requested it. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Think of that contrast. And when God wants to put His glory on display, He does so by becoming flesh and then dying. And that is His glory. That is His glory. It's interesting. Notice this last phrase. The only God. No one has ever seen God in verse 18. The only God who is at the Father's side, who comes from the Father's bosom, He has made Him known. That word is the Greek word exegete. Have you ever heard of somebody talking about exegesis? or to exegete something. It just simply means to take something and to lead it out. So sometimes you're reading the Bible and you're like, I just don't understand what that means. And you go to somebody and they explain it. They exegete it. They lead it out. And then you say, oh now I understand that. I didn't understand that. But now that makes sense. They exegeted it. They let it out. They explained it. And so what we see here is this. The only Son who is the only God who comes from the Father's bosom, He has explained God. He has led God out to where we understand. No one has seen God. Chapter 5.37, chapter 6.46 says this and Colossians 1.15 tells us how Jesus is the image of the invisible God in 1 Timothy 6. It tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light. 1 John chapter 4, twice he tells us in that chapter no one has ever seen God. Then what we saw in Exodus 33, show me your glory. No one has seen God. Someone tells you they saw God? Take them to that verse. No one has seen God. God, in His glory. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, but he does not see Him. And when he sees Him high and lifted up, he says what? "Uh Uh-oh, woe is me. I am undone. That word literally means I am flying apart. Remember Raiders of the Lost Ark when the poor guy flies apart in Steven Spielberg's imagination. It's like Isaiah is saying, I am flying apart. I can feel my molecules like blowing apart in the presence of the glory of God. No one has seen God. But Jesus says this, and we'll close with it. In chapter 12 of John, Jesus cries out, The one who believes in me, believes not just in me, but in him who sent me. The one who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world. So that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. The one who sees me sees him who sent me. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, it astounds us that you took on flesh and dwelt, tabernacle, tented, in our midst so that we would see your glory and then as the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us we can come with boldness to the very throne of grace knowing that you understand all of our weakness and all of our needs because you were a man you lived in our midst and we can find grace to help in our time of need. Lord Jesus, simply show us Yourself all this week in Your Word. Show us Your glory. Transform us to be like You. And so we pray in Jesus' name.